The following is a sermon from Living Hope Bible Church in Port Rowan, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit livinghopebiblechurch.ca. Bibles open, ready, and encouraged to be engaged with God. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts again this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. Another opportunity to get into God's Word. Uh, Looking forward to next week. How many people are looking forward to next week when we get to be together again outside uh, worshiping and uh, studying God's Word? So thankful for that. Listen, I'm going to get right into the, the text this morning, this I promise you that if if you allow the Lord to to work in your life this morning, that this this week might hurt a little bit. This week might bring a little bit of uh, pain to our hearts because uh, this is a message that uh, comes straight from God's word, uh, very convicting. Even as I was looking through it again this week, uh, before we get really into it, I want to just lay out this kind of rule for us as we go, okay? So context always determines interpretation of Scripture, all right? We, we folks in, in, in my world of, of Bible teachers, we call this context is king. So because context is king, we actually, before we can get into Daniel chapter 5, we have to go back to Daniel chapter 4 and just look at the last couple of verses in Daniel chapter 4 to really be able to build into uh, where we're headed today. So right away in Daniel chapter 4, you'll remember from last week, Nebuchadnezzar he had this dream and this vision about a tree, and this tree was going to be chopped down, and the tree would become like an animal. We also learned that this tree was really a man, and that man was Nebuchadnezzar, and that he went crazy in the woods for seven years in the wilderness, where he was pretty much uh, living like an animal. He had eagles, like he would have, you know, uh, hair like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. I bet you some of you out in, in the church, you're probably hoping, waiting, can't wait for a, a barber shop or a hairdresser to open because maybe you feel like your hair is like that of eagle's feathers. All right, so what happened though was quite amazing at the end of chapter 4 in verse 34 to 37 is where we want to pick up context rules. And this is what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards the heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is everlasting, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation." All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
at this time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, my reason returned to me, my majesty, my splendor was restored to me, the glory of my kingdom, my counselors and nobles became seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, surpassing greatness was added to me. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Uh, The context of where we're headed today actually starts with the final words of verse 37, and that is that he, God, is able to humble those who walk in pride. That sets up this entire section of chapter 5. The whole passage, just like last week. Last week we had one point. God rules over everything. God is sovereign. This week, one point. No need for multiple points coming across your screen. One point. And that one point is that pride is not an option for an alien. All right, so pride does not, cannot have any position in our lives if we are truly those who resolve to live a life that glorifies and honors God. Do you see where we're headed here? We're, we're heading all the way into this passage where we've seen Nebuchadnezzar be humbled by the mighty hand of God in chapter 4, and then we are going to fast forward quite a number of years into chapter 5, and we are going to look at what happens next. So let me set up chapter 5 with you with a little bit of a history lesson, and we're going to uh, have a little fun with this, I promise, all right? So chapter 5, if you are writing dates in the margin of your Bible, this is 539 B.C., 605 BC is when Nebuchadnezzar came into power and he sieged Jerusalem. This is now 539. We're like almost 81 years that Daniel is now. So when he came into captivity, he was 15. Now we are in chapter 5 and he is around 81 years old. And we're going to see in verse 5 that there has something significant has happened in Babylon. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousands. All right? So before we go any further, chapter 4 ends with Nebuchadnezzar praising and exalting God. He's so humbled by what God has done in his life. Chapter 5 picks up, and Belshazzar is now the king. All right, so the, the time between chapter 4 and chapter 5 is quite significant, and a lot has happened. The first thing that has happened is Nebuchadnezzar has died. And when Nebuchadnezzar died, uh, his son took over and became king. But his son was murdered. And his son was murdered. And then his son-in-law became king. And he was killed in battle. And then this guy comes on the scene. And if you were to look at a history of Israel timeline, you would see that a man by the name of Nabonius then becomes king. Uh, Nabonius 
was, a, was an interesting man, according to history. Uh, he really didn't want to be king. His, his focus was worshiping the moon god. That's all he really cared about. And so they actually put Belshazzar, who is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, into power. And so Belshazzar was leading the kingdom of Babylon as sort of like a, a co-lead because Nabonius, he just wanted to worship the moon. So really, Belshazzar is second in the kingdom at this time in the history of Babylon. And what we're going to learn about Belshazzar in the next few minutes is going to kind of uh, rattle and shake us by what this man is doing. So, uh, according to this, verse 1, he is a king and he is having a great feast, and a thousand of his nobles, uh, they were drinking wine in the presence of thousands. Look at verse 2. It says, When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, had, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles and his ex-wives or his wives and his concubines might drink for them. This, this is quite the party that's happening. There are thousands of people that are at this party, and, and Belshazzar in his rule and his haste, here's what he's doing. He is taking the vessels, these vessels that were found in the temple of God way back in Jerusalem, these vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took out of Jerusalem. And in chapter 1, you can go back and see what Nebuchadnezzar did with these vessels. But he took these vessels, these sacred things, and he put them in the house of the worship of his God. And there they sat for the entire time that Nebuchadnezzar was in charge. We never have another mention of these vessels from the temple at all during the life of Nebuchadnezzar. But here, Belshazzar, he orders that they go and get those, those things that are gold and silver and that they are going to use them as party cups. They're going to use them in a way where, where they're going to get drunk on wine and they are going to worship false gods using these vessels. Uh, here's the problem, and, and you can write this cross-reference down. Exodus chapter 30, uh, verses 25 to 30. So go with me to Exodus chapter 25, or Exodus 30, sorry. Exodus 30, uh, verses 25 to 30, and, and just listen, as God instructs Moses concerning the tabernacle, and when God is instructing Moses concerning the tabernacle, he's laying out all of the utensils and everything that is to be built for the temple, for the worship of God. Do you see what God has done as God has done in Exodus, and the same that he did with the building of the temple. He has shown us that as believers, as people of God, how we are to approach a living God. How I would love to spend some time with you to show you how the tabernacle sets up to approach a living God. 
And so what he does after all of this is built is in chapter 30, verses 25 to 30, listen to what God tells Moses he must do. He says, you shall make of these a holy anointed oil and a perfume and a mixture. The work of a perfumer, it shall be holy and anointed. With it, you shall anoint the tent of the meeting and the ark of the testimony. And what you also will anoint, these are my paraphrase and bring you back, 27, the table and all its utensils and the lampstands and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering and all the utensils and the laver and its stand. You shall also consecrate them that they may be the most holy Whatever touches them, they, shall be ho- they have to be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister as priests to me. Do you hear the key word that's coming through Exodus? That key word is holy. That only those who are holy are to touch the things that are most holy. And you see what Belshazzar does in, in his arrogance as king. Go get me those vessels that are only meant for the worship of God. And let's drink out of them. And let's worship the gods of gold and silver with these things. Uh, Let me tell you just kind of what's happening in this time frame of Babylon. I want you to understand that Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar had built such a wonderful kingdom around him. Remember the kingdom that he looked over and that he worshipped and said, look what I built. And then God humbled him. Listen Listen to this kingdom from historians. Are you ready for this? The walls around Babylon, they were 17 miles long. These walls were 40 feet high. They were 20 feet thick. And within these walls, there was food that was going to hold them together and sustain the people of Babylon for 20 years. All of this was in place inside the walls of Babylon. This, this reminds me of uh, the Israel tour that I have done a number of times. And there's a, a location in Israel called Masada. And, and Masada was uh, the location of Herod's vacation home. Uh, there's, there's no record of uh, Herod actually being there. But Cleopatra, all right, this is Cleopatra, you know, she would spend her vacation there. It was on the top of a very high mountain, one of the highest peaks. You can see the Dead Sea from, from where it is. You can see into Jordan from the top of Masada. I got to mention as a side note, there's a fantastic McDonald's down in the basement of the tour area. Oh, that's the only McDonald's you want to eat at. All right, so there is uh, Masada. But on the outside of Masada, there's all these little encampments that are all around. And the encampments were the army. 
And the army, what they were doing at the time of Masada, was they were building a ramp with rocks. And they were piling the rocks up the mountain so that they could use their, uh, this mountain to pull up their chariots and pull up their, their soldiers that they could climb the walls and get into Masada and defeat those that were there. Do you see, in Masada, they too had food storage of about 20 years and they thought they were untouchable. You see, just outside the walls of Babylon, there is an army. The army is Darius the Mede and Cyrus, who is the Persian. They have come together. They have come together in partnership to overtake Babylon. And you see, here's the thing. In in times before uh, the advancement of technology and tanks that could go through walls like that. They, it took time for those things to happen. You see, Belshazzar, he knew the Medes and the Persians were just outside the walls. And even though the enemy was at the walls, ready to figure out a way to get in there, Belshazzar's focus is a feast and a party using the vessels of God's temple. Uh, Belshazzar is at this party, and, and we can't read into it too much, but when you look at the Babylonians, they're untouchable. You can't get at me. We're safe. Our walls are over 20 feet thick. They're over 40 feet high. They're 17 miles long. We've got food here for 20 plus years. Don't worry about those guys out there. Nothing is going to get at us and let's party. You see, uh, the interesting part, if you look at a map of where Bible, the, in Bible times Babylon was, you'll know that the, the Euphrates River kind of came alongside of it. And, we'll, and I'll tell you the, the greatest thing about the, the Medes and the Persians when we come to the end of this chapter. So he's, he's throwing this party. Look at verse 3. Uh, they brought the gold, the vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. The kings and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, wood, and iron. Fantastic party getting drunk on wine, worshiping false gods, using utensils that were only meant to be used in the purpose of worshiping God. Do you see the problem? Do you you see the setup right here? Do you see what's about to happen? If you look at verse 37 of chapter 4, the whole purpose of where this is all headed is, what is God able to do? God is able to humble those who walk in pride. There is not one person more arrogant than Belshazzar right now than to be able to take what he is doing with these vessels and to do what he is doing, knowing all that has happened to his grandfather and worship false gods with the vessels. Now look at verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged 
and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Uh, you want to you write in the margin, uh, the writing is on the wall. You know the saying? The writing is on the wall. It comes from this verse. Uh, that saying about, oh, the writing is on the wall, that, that, that comes from here. And, and you think about it. When we say the writing is on the wall, we, may, we mean that, that that's the end. Oh, man, the, write, the writing's on the wall. It's the end. This is the end for Belshazzar. So he sees this writing on the wall. And, and verse 6, I just love verse 6 because it's not just writing on a wall. It, it's kind of catching him. Look at his reaction. Then the king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack. His knees began knocking together. I wish I could, you know, come and tell you what, what does it look like for my hips to go slack. I don't know, but I do know what it's like to have my knees knock. I know what it's like to be in that kind of fear. That your face changes color at what you're seeing. And that's Belshazzar. I, I just wish somebody... One day, show me what it looks like to have your hip joints go slack and your knees start knocking together. It's probably going to take a cartoon character to show us how that works. But he is so afraid at what he has just seen that his complete demeanor has changed. Verse 7, the king called aloud, to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Uh, we've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen this when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream of, of the statue in chapter 2. He calls in all of the wise men to be able to interpret the dream and, and give him an understanding of what it was. We see it in chapter 4 when he has the dream of the tree that they bring in the wise men and the wise men can't figure it out. This is why it constantly sets up. God constantly sets up in his message here for God to win the battle, and show us his sovereignty. We're setting up here for the very fact that Daniel is going to come on the scene and Daniel once again is going to do the work of God and be God's messenger. But you see, verse 7, I just love verse 7 because in verse 7 he says, look, if you can interpret my dream, if you can do this, here's what I've got for you. I will clothe you in purple, which is a sign of royalty. I will give you necklaces of gold around your neck. You're going to have all this authority as what? Third ruler in the kingdom. This guy does not even have power in the ability to give anything more than the third ruler in the kingdom. Why? Because he's not really in charge. Nabonius. You see, Nabonius is the ruler at this time. Belshazzar has taken on the duties of the king, 
but he has no ability to hand over any more authority than the third ruler. Do you see the problem here? He's not even in charge, and he is acting and walking around like he is the king of kings of Babylon. Get me the vessels. Let's worship the gods of gold and silver and wood. Let's do this. We can have a party using all these utensils. I'm in charge here. No, no, Belshazzar, you're not in charge. You can only offer the third position in the kingdom. Verse 8 says, all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Now look what it does. All right, so before his hips went slack, his, his face grew pale, he was alarmed, but now that nobody can read the interpretation, it says that he was greatly alarmed and his face got even whiter. And his nobles were perplexed. Can you imagine that that all the people that you were partying with, that all the people you were having all of this joy and fun and laughter and you were worshiping all these false gods and you were walking around like you were all powerful and all of a sudden you see writing on the wall and your face begins to go white and your hips go slack and your knees are knocking. It doesn't even talk about the response of the people in that time, but when there's nobody who can interpret it, that's when his face goes really white and everybody who's partying with him looks and goes, there's something wrong. Now he's really not looking right. He goes from his hips being slack to being greatly alarmed at the very fact of what he has seen and nobody can interpret. Look at verse 10. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles And the queen spoke and said, O king, live live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who is a spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, uh, illumination, insight, wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods who were found in him. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, Uh, Your father, the king, appointed him as chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. Uh, This was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanations of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. So, so before we go any further, let me, let me just lay this out for you. The queen uh, mentioned in verse 10 is not Belshazzar's wife. This is most likely uh, Nebuchadnezzar's wife that uh, is doing this, who would have known the time around which Daniel was ministering. When the text here refers to father, it does not necessarily mean a direct relationship or that, you know, that 
Belshazzar was his son, but it's along the family line, and father can also mean grandfather. In the same way that the queen here as this position can also mean grandmother. Because you have to ask yourself that throughout this time, why wasn't Daniel, the one who was appointed lead over all these people, in the room with Belshazzar when they were initially looking at the writing on the wall? Well, the text tells us, one, that Daniel is around 81 years old at this time. And so it's very well that not necessarily was Daniel in retirement, but he was not a focus of Belshazzar's kingdom. The fact that Belshazzar did not know about Daniel tells us that he was not actively involved in leading at this time, that the queen really had to introduce Daniel. Now, look at the way in this text how Daniel is mentioned. All right, first, he has wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Okay, well, that makes sense for someone who worships many gods that they will say that, but we can also go back to Daniel chapter 1. So go back with me to Daniel chapter 1 for a minute because it's, it's a good reminder to look at what God has done in the life of Daniel and so we can see what uh, this sets up for. Uh, verse 17, as for the four use, chapter 117, God gave them knowledge, intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So what, what is being described of Daniel here is not just wisdom of gods. It is that the God of gods has given Daniel the ability to interpret dreams and visions. And this is what they have seen throughout his life within captivity. He has the wisdom of the gods that were found in him. Your father appointed him and made him the chief of the magicians. Look what it says. Why did he do this? Because he has an extraordinary spirit and an insight and interpretation of dreams. And he has explanation of enigmas and he can solve difficult problems. Uh, the, the extraordinary spirit, you know, that really gets into the heart. We see, we see in Daniel that through his whole life, up until 81 years old, that there's really only can be found in him these positive descriptions of his life. This is the Daniel that, that we have been studying. He, he can interpret difficult things, things that are well beyond what others can interpret. Verse 13 says, uh, Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said, Daniel, here's how you know they didn't really know each other. Are you the Daniel who's one of the exiles from Judah who my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard about you and that the spirit of the gods is in you. That illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought before me that they might read the instruction and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. I personally have heard of you. Yes, that's right. Well, you did hear because the queen just told you. I've heard about you and that you were able to give interpretations of difficult problems. 
Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make it known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you'll have authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. Isn't it amazing that every time the opportunity comes for Daniel to, to interpret a dream, there's, there's some sort of reward that can lift and elevate him if he chooses to take all the credit for himself. Verse uh, 17 says, Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. I will interpret the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to you. I feel like in, in this moment, if I, if I could have been there, like how great would it have been to, to be there? To just see Daniel in his humility and stand there and go, look, I don't need that stuff. I don't need to be the third ruler in the kingdom. Do you know what God has done for him through the time that he has been in captivity? God continues to elevate Daniel in his life every time Daniel humbles himself before the mighty God. Daniel doesn't need the rewards that can be handed to him from the kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. He he wants all to be given for the glory of God. See, Daniel, we've seen this over and over. He is not in this for his own glory. Daniel only wants to elevate his God to the position of where he belongs over each and every one of us. Verse 18 says, O king, the most high God, grant sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which has bestowed in him all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Why did they fear and tremble? Because he threatened them all the time. I'm going to rip your arms and legs off if you don't do this. He became one of the strongest people in in the world. People trembled before Nebuchadnezzar. Whoever he wanted, he killed. Whoever he wished, he spared their life. Whoever he wished, he elevated. Whoever he wanted, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved behaved arrogantly. He was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. Verse 21, he was driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of the beasts. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized the most high God, ruler over the realm of mankind, that he sets over whoever he wishes. Verse 22, this is, this is the kick in the teeth. Are you ready for it? This is the moment Daniel has been waiting for. He says, you, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself even though you knew All of this. Daniel just gave Belshazzar a history lesson. He he just walked through these verses and he said, 
I'm about to interpret this dream for you, but let me remind you of your grandfather. Your grandfather who stood and elevated himself and looked over his kingdom and said, look what I built. And the moment he said, look what I built, that tree was chopped down and he went crazy in the wilderness for seven years until he recognized God was the most holy God and God was most high. And at that time, chapter four tells us when he recognized God as most high, his reason returned to him, his kingdom returned to him, his riches returned to him. He was restored. At the end of chapter 4, he says that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is not so far released that Belshazzar doesn't know about this. Belshazzar knows what happened to his grandfather, and yet he has chosen to walk in the arrogance of himself. He did not learn his lesson. You see, this this is where the rubber hits the road for you and I. You see, God has given us, in this book, he has given us 66 books of the Bible for us to understand and learn from. Now, wait for it. Listen to this. The Old Testament is written. There are tons of stories of people's lives in the Old Testament. They are written for our instruction. They are written for us to learn from the good things that they've done as well as the bad things that they've done. We are to learn from the people of the Old Testament. The people in what's happening in the New Testament is how to live out the truths of God's word in a way that Jesus has called us to live. But the Old Testament examples, Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, all of those people laid out there from the Old Testament, they are there for us to learn from. Do you know who we have to learn from? We have to learn from the Israelites, God's people. We can learn about the times that they walked in unity with God. We can learn about the times that they broke covenant with God. We can learn for the very fact that they elevated false gods above the one true God and became so arrogant in their worship that God had to humble the Israelite people first by destroying the northern kingdom through the Assyrians and secondly by taking the people captive into into Babylon by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, we have that as an example that this is what happens when you worship false gods. This is what happens when you walk in pride. The very fact that God will humble you. We have that example here. The same way that Belshazzar has the example. Therefore, there should be no reason for you and I to walk in the arrogance of life, knowing that what God does to those who are prideful. There's no way we should be living in that way. But you know what we do? We study the scriptures of the Old Testament and we say to ourselves, I cannot believe that the Old Testament people, the Israelites, didn't learn from each other and they kept making the same mistakes. We study the Bible now and say that. At least I do. And then we don't realize that we're just following the same pattern We're walking in our own arrogance of sin. We're walking in our own pride. We're walking in a way where we say, we don't need God for this. I can do it myself. We have the example of others that we need to learn from. And how are you doing with that? 
Are you brushing off the examples of others and continuing to walk in the pride of your own heart? Daniel says, you didn't learn from your father. You didn't learn from what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You didn't learn the very fact that God humbled him and put him into the wilderness for seven years. You didn't pick up what was put down. Therefore, look at verse 23. You exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. They brought the vessels of the house before you. And your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver, gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see, hear, or understand. But God, in God whose hand your life, breath, your ways, you have not glorified. Do you see what Daniel's doing there? He is calling out the simplicity of the sin that's happening in the life of Belshazzar. He's not going anywhere else but the one act that was taken in the very purpose of grabbing those vessels and worshiping false gods with things that were set to be holy. Uh, God is a jealous God. He does not want any other gods before him. He wants all of the glory to be given to him. He wants you to take none of it for yourself. He wants you to give God all the credit for everything that happens in your life. That's what we looked at last week, that he is ruler over all. And here, taking the most holy of holy things from the temple, things that were set apart, that were only to be used by the Levites, that weren't to be touched by anyone else because they were not consecrated, set apart, and holy, and they worshiped false gods. You know what that did? God, that brought to God's attention that this person needed to be humbled for their sin. Look what it says in verse 24. The hand that did the writing was sent from God. It was sent from God, and this is the inscription that was laid out. Now, now we can all have fun looking at verses 25 to 28, and we can, we can all butcher these words together, okay? We can, we can look at them and try to get a better understanding, but this is the inscription that was on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, you farsan. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom, and put it to an end. Uh, Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Uh, let's, let's look at these words individually for a minute. The first one, mene, which is a counting term. All right, so secondly, tekel is uh, similar, very similar to the word uh, shekel, which, of course, is the, the money used at the time. And so it's related to weighing, all right, weighing uh, or related to weights. And then um, Perez is very much your king, your um, Perez is kind of the same meaning as uh, Eupharsan. And that is, Eupharsan is divided. 
So let me give you the interpretation of this right now. This is, this is what God is saying to, to um, Belshazzar. Your kingdom has been weighed. Your kingdom has been measured. Your kingdom has been found wanting. Belshazzar, God looked at your kingdom. He counted or marked what you have done. He's weighed it on the scales and he has found it to be deficient. Mene, mene, teko, you farsin, that your kingdom is going to come to an end. You see, while this party was going on, well, there was this great celebration, the Medes and the Persians, they were just outside the walls. When they were outside the walls, they realized that they, they couldn't go around or go through the gates. Uh, they couldn't go over because it was too high. And they couldn't go through because it was too thick. You see, what they did was they went to the part of the city where the Euphrates River flowed. And the Medes and the Persians, they diverted the Euphrates River and they went under the wall. They, they went through the riverbank under the walls and got into the city of Babylon. Look at verse 29. Belshazzar, he, he gave orders to clothe Daniel with purple and then put the necklace around his neck and issued the proclamation concerning him that he had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. This just blows my mind. This blows my mind in the very fact that Belshazzar is so arrogant that he doesn't get on his hands and knees and repent to God. The first thing he does is keeps his word about the promises of promotion and reward. He, he doesn't heed the warning that God has given him in the writing on the wall. You see, here's the problem that I really want you to understand, even for, for you today. Is that sometimes we get so prideful, we don't know we're prideful. It takes other people to show us our arrogance. Why? Because our own pride will not allow us to admit that we're struggling with pride. And so it's really hard for us 
to evaluate our own hearts without the Holy Spirit chipping away at that stone that's around it, that pride that is just filling us. We need the Holy Spirit to just convict us and humble us and show us the ways that we're not living like we are living after God. It's to show us the ways when we're not elevating God to the top and authority over all of us. We need the Holy Spirit to show us these things because our flesh and our pride won't allow it. It won't allow us to show when we're too cocky and too arrogant and too proud to admit that we're dealing with pride. Belshazzar rewards Daniel, but that same night, look what happens, that same night, the Chaldean king was slain. The Medes and the Persians on the outside, they divert the Euphrates River, and Darius walks right into the room. And he puts a sword through Belshazzar's chest, and he kills him. In that very time, think about how it started with great celebration, with a great party, with the vessels of the temple the worshiping of false gods, the writing on the wall, the call to humility, the ignoring the call to humility, and there lay Belshazzar, dead. Verse 31, Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age 62. The end of Daniel chapter 5, you are seeing the end of the Babylonian kingdom. Remember the statue, the head of gold. Then the chest, this is the chest. This is the second kingdom to come. Uh, Turn with me to to Jeremiah chapter 51, and I want you to see uh, that when Jeremiah was prophesying, this was before before the, the end of the Babylonian reign, before they began to take people into captivity, Jeremiah chapter 51, uh, God sends a message through Jeremiah to Babylon. And he says in uh, fifth, chapter 51, verse 1, he says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm going to arouse against Babylon and against the inhabitants of Aleb Kemai, the spirit of a destroyer. Turn to uh, verses 54 and 57. God is going to raise up someone against Babylon. Verse 54 of chapter 51 says, the sound of an outcry from Babylon and of great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans. For the Lord is going to destroy Babylon. He will make her loud noise vanish from her. And their waves will roar like many waters. The tumult of their voices sound forth. Uh, For the destroyer is coming against her and against Babylon. And her mighty men will be captured. Their bows are shattered. For the Lord is a God of recompense. He will fully repay. I will make her princes and her wise men drunk. Her governors, her prefects, 
her mighty men, that they may sleep in a perpetual sleep and not wake up, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus the Lord of hosts, the broad wall of Babylon, will be completely razed. Her high gates will be set on fire. So the peoples will toil for nothing. And the nations become exhausted only for fire. Jeremiah chapter 51. God says way before the first siege of Babylon that God will destroy Babylon. And what we saw right here in chapter 5 is we saw that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. So, so what, do we, what do we have for us? All right? Uh, I'm going to give you uh, the name of this author. Now, bear with. I don't want any emails from this because this author wrote a, a really good book a number of years ago. It, it, his name is Andy Stanley, and he wrote this book called The Principle of the Path. And, and the only quote that I was able to take from that book that I thought would best fit this is this. He says, your direction, not your intention, determines your destination. So let me just lay that out for you again. Your direction, not your intention, determines your destination. You see, Daniel, in his life, his direction was always setting up for God's glory. You see, our intention, this is the problem with intention. We can intend to do things well. We can intend to be people who are going to glorify God in all that we do. That's my intent. I promise to do that. But you see, intent actually has to become action to determine your destination. Intent is to only think about it to put purpose to it. But we must be people who take action. Daniel resolved to live a life that brought glory and honor to God. Whether he was 15 or whether he was 80 years old, all glory was given to God. Well, what about you? Are you living the life that is one that is bringing glory and honor to God? Are you one that is traveling on that direction which really is determining your destination, which we know as aliens is in eternity with God? Or are you living with intention? Are you living in the world where you just intend to do that, but you haven't got around to actually doing it? You see, the whole call of resolve is that we resolve to make the commitment to live it out, to do it daily, long before we have to make that choice called to live by the example of Daniel. That's why the Old Testament is there for us. Right in this passage this week, we see the difference between those who want to walk in pride 
versus the one who wants to walk in the glory of God. The results of Belshazzar's decision resulted in death. The results that Daniel chose to resolve way back in chapter one leads to life. Do you see the difference? Do you see why we need to live with resolve? God is calling you to humble yourself under his mighty hand and live a life that glorifies and honors him. Don't live in the pride of the world. Don't think you've got it all together. Humble yourself before God. Live with direction that determines your destination. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these examples that we continue to see in the Old Testament. We thank you that we can learn about you and about your character and how you you humble those who walk in pride. Father, in this, in this moment now, I ask that you would uh, search the heart of every person listening this morning. That you would clearly speak by the power of your Holy Spirit. Show each one of us in the areas in which we are living with great arrogance. Show us the ways where we need to humble ourselves before you. And Father, use circumstances in our life to bring us into that position. Bring people into our lives that will speak truth into us, even when it hurts, so that we can resolve to be more and more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.